This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this bite-sized bio web seminar. Today's presentation is titled How to Prepare a Winning Grant Proposal, Part 3, Resubmission, and is being presented by Dr. Gail Siegel, a research associate professor at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Gail is a graduate of Rutgers University for her bachelor's degree and Albany Medical College for her doctorate. She did her postdoctoral training at the University of Rochester. Gail's primary research focus is the study of cancer stem cells and chemoresistance in retinoblastoma. She has authored over 75 manuscripts and has received a Sybil Harrington Research Scholar Award from Research to Prevent Blindness and a Fight for Sight Alumni Achievement Award. Gail is a fellow of the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology and has served as a member of grant study sections, including the National Institutes of Health, Department of Defense, National Science Foundation, and Fight for Sight. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Gail at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash grant proposal resubmission. That's bit.ly slash grant proposal resubmission, all one word, lowercase. So now, over to you, Gail, for the presentation. Thank you very much, Amanda, and thank you for Bite Size Bio for uh, hosting this webinar. Uh, today is part three of how to prepare a winning grant proposal, and part three is resubmission. So, okay, as I mentioned, the first two parts of the webinar were uh, getting started. That was a couple of weeks ago. Then we went through nuts and bolts of your research plan. And then we went to, uh, now today, responding to critiques. So let's start out. Now you've just received a notice that your summary statement or your review of your grant is available for viewing. And the first thing to do is don't panic. Uh, it is kind of scary, especially the first couple times that it, that you get that notice, but it's uh, it's not as bad as you might think. You know, you uh, sort of kind of get yourself together and prepare yourself for uh, what you're going to be reading. So my some of my advice as far as responding to the review, you pick the time to read the review. Um, pick the best time because that critique is going to wait for you. You don't need to read it the second it arrives. If you're in the middle of something, uh, you know, you're at a, another event or something, it, it's really better to, to, to find your own time and space to read the review. So, you know, find a quiet time where you are not going to have distractions. Um, I don't try to eat lunch while I'm reading it. It's kind of, you know, it's, you know, you want to be sort of uh, very uh, concentrating on it and not have a lot of other things going on. And, you know, you can always take a break and come back to it later. Be sure to read it more than once because every time you read it, you're going to see something else in it. And you can take notes. So these are some of the strategies I use so that it's not um, all too much at once on trying to just read the review. And of course, the first, my first lesson is don't take it personally. I know it's really easy to say that and, you know, you're reading through what the reviewers think of what you did and 
sometimes it, it, it you feel bad reading it because you put so much into it. But the reviewers, it's not a personal thing. They're, you know, reviewing it. They have opinions and ideas, and it's not meant against you personally. And that's important thing to do because you don't want to internalize a negativity. You want to read it sort of as, as try to be as objective as you can and to respond, you know, in a professional way rather than in a personal way. So you have a few possible outcomes when you read the review or when you get your review. The one, the best possible outcome is that your grant is funded. Um, number two is your grant is not funded. Or number three, you're in some kind of a limbo. And a lot of time, most of the time, you're going to be in limbo because often you'll get the review and you might even get a score, but you might not know what the score means. So there, there's a bit of a limbo. You're waiting to find out what does your score mean? Is it a good sign? Is it a bad sign? Um, so these are kind of the three possible outcomes that you can have when you go through and um, get read your review and get your review and feedback. So if your grant is funded, I would say log out of this webinar and go enjoy yourself. Um, but no, seriously, um, even if you're funded, uh, there are going to be times where you won't be or where you need to think about resubmissions and responses. So even if you have a grant right now or you just got funded, stay, stay on the line here and um, there, there, maybe you can uh, find some useful pointers for when uh, you don't have that good news. So if your grant is not funded or you're in limbo, I say take heart and take action because there are definitely things you can do to um, improve the situation and hopefully things will get better for you. So let's talk about the summary statement. Um, this is an NIH uh, summary statement co cover page where it says privileged communication. So the st summary statement is confidential. So you want to only share it with someone that you trust for feedback if you feel like sharing it with someone. Um, you know, be careful about uh, who sees it and who reads it. And if you look through it and you need to clarify some things, if you have questions about the review, you can contact the program officer at the funding agency for more detail. So you can ask them, these are some questions you can ask, um, something like, what was the overall opinion of this proposal? Would you encourage a resubmission? What are the most important factors to address? So those are some of the things that you can ask the um, program officer. You never want to contact the reviewers themselves. That is a no-no. Um, they are not to be contacted. That's kind of a breach of uh, protocol, and you could get in trouble for that. So keep your, your comments and your clarifications with the, the program officer, the person in charge of the review, and not the individual reviewers themselves. So you can read through the response, and sometimes you get this gut feeling. You feel the review was unfair to you in some way, so that either the reviewers didn't seem to understand your proposal, or they appeared to misread or miss something that you wrote, and it can anger or frustrate you when you think that that's happened. And my best advice when this happens is, it's really unlikely that you would convince the sponsor to re-review your application. I say focus on resubmission unless there's something very egregious, you know, some terrible break in protocol where there's obviously a major problem uh, with the review. If it's just something where they, you don't feel like they got it or, or they didn't read something, it's put it on yourself to make it clearer next time. Um, the chances are they're going to ask you to resubmit and not uh, 
let you have a re-review. So focus on the resubmission um, unless it's something really bad. So before you start responding to the critique, ask yourself whether you can address the criticisms that you're reading. And sometimes the answer is no. And you know that's something to consider and think about where uh, sometimes you can't address the critique. If you decide not to resubmit to the same place, you can always use the critique and reinvent your proposal and send it to another sponsor. Um, and I, but at the, on the same, at the same time, the proposals that you are that are listed, not discussed or triaged, may still be salvageable. So um, don't feel that just because something wasn't discussed, that it's not good. It could definitely be improved. I, I know of situations, even in my own case, where something was not discussed one time, and then it was sent back, and then it was funded. So you, there are ways of reusing and recycling proposals that didn't work the first time. So once you've decided to resubmit, what I usually do is copy and paste the comments onto a fresh document and leave spaces for your response. And in the case of NIH, this is the introduction to revised application page, which is usually one page. And so you address each criticism very clearly, thoroughly, and respectfully. This is definitely not the time to write in anger. So if you're feeling emotional or overwhelmed by it, come back to it another time. So the written response, um, I, you start with an introduction to the introduction. So that what I mean by that is an introductory paragraph to your response, making sure to be thankful to the previous reviewers for their helpful comments and highlighting the strengths of the previous proposal. So here's an example in the shaded area. Thank you for the opportunity to respond to the reviewers' helpful comments on our proposal entitled the DH mutation in unicorns submitted to the Mythical Creatures Foundation. The summary statement indicated enthusiasm by reviewers for our innovation, there's your strength, as well as a few concerns. So below we address specific points raised by the reviewers. We trust that our responses sufficiently address these concerns resulting in a highly feasible proposal. So there you have it, just a very brief, a few sentences um, introducing and you know pointing out your strengths and saying how you're going to address the concerns point by point. If you're not at the point where you can say thank you to the reviewers, you're not ready to write the response. So take a step back and uh, get into a place in your mind where you can actually say thank you for the, the comments because you want to have a good attitude going into this when you're writing this. So as far as addressing things in your response, um, some flaws can be addressed in time if you needed to gather more preliminary results or you needed to publish another paper to add to your biosketch or adding the new collaborator if you had a gap in your expertise level. And these are things that are you know, pretty straightforward that you can address in the response as you're writing it. But there are fatal flaws. If you're no longer eligible or you've reached the limit of allowable resubmissions, in the second case, you may be able to restructure it as a new application. So you can take the broken egg and make a fried egg out of it. So there are there are ways of, of again, I always look for the way to that you can reuse it. You spend a lot of time on your proposal, and if there's a good way to reuse it and in another venue or another way, uh, see if you can do that because you know it's it's definitely worth. If you've decided that it's worth resubmitting, you know it's it's something worth doing. 
Now, as far as your response, there are what less clear are the criticisms from the reviewers that you need to evaluate on a case by case basis. And so for a little while, I'm going to go through some kind of common criticism that you might see in your review and how you might address them. Uh, there are different ways of doing it, but here I'm going to show you some examples. So here's an example. The critique says you're using the wrong animal model. So first you ask, do you agree or disagree with that, their statement? If you agree and you think, you know what, there probably is a better animal model, can you do some experiments on a better animal model before the next submission? And that might take some time, especially, you know, a lot of animal studies take a long time. So if you have time uh, and you agree with them, go to the better animal model and send it back with the new animal model if you can. Or do you disagree with them? That's okay. I mean, you can explain why you disagree by saying the unicorn is the ideal model system for the double horn mutation as it does not occur in any other animal species. So there could be you know, a very valid reason why you're using the right animal model. And it's okay to uh, say something like that if you disagree. And then you get the, uh, this is a, another common critique, statistical analysis is weak. Now, when you get some kind of a critique like this, um, you can address it with a more detailed explanation of your statistics. You can even add a biostatistician to the personnel list if you think that would help. But make sure that you deal in statistically significant results rather than trends or graphs where you don't have statistical significance because that can be a red flag to reviewers. So whatever you show statistics or graphs, make sure you have your p-values and your significance so that they can evaluate it. Another critique, um, and this is very vague in general, the project lacks innovation. I mean, you can say that about almost anything, really. Um, but, but, you know, if you get this kind of a critique, you need to respond by either adding innovative experiments or refocusing the description of the project to highlight the innovation. I mean, you think about what you're doing, there's usually something innovative about it. Do you have a unique access to your samples or you have a unique team or you have an innovative new method? Are you doing, there's gotta be something, you got, you've gotta highlight the innovation. Um, and like I say, this is kind of a general critique, uh, but hopefully you can come up with new and innovative ways of describing what you're doing to the reviewers. Here's another really common critique, that the feasibility of AIM-3 depends on the success of AIMS-1 and 2. So this is a common mistake. Um, I talked about it a little bit in, in part two of this webinar. And you can address it by reconfiguring the aims so that they're not dependent on each other. So here's an example of a dependent aim problem. Aim one, construct a probe. Aim two, use the probe from aim one to do experiments. Now you can see the problem here is that if aim, doesn't, aim one doesn't work and you can't make the probe or there's some problem with it, um, you'll never get to AIM-2. So that's what they mean by AIM-2 depending on AIM-1, and you would be stuck. Project wouldn't go any further than that. So this is where uh, you can actually address this, and I, I have one way of in the next slide. So how to repair this, have the probe ready so that AIM-2 becomes AIM-1. 
So this time you say, we already have the probe, we we're gonna use it in AIM-1, and then AIM-2 is your next step. And I know, uh, you know, people say, well, I need to construct the probe, I need the funds to do it. And that is always a, uh, a tricky situation where you don't have what you need, you know, to do what you wanna do, and that becomes a problem in and of itself. Ideally, you wanna have everything you need and all the resources so that AIM-1 is not I am going to make something that I need to use for the rest of this project and I don't already have it. That's usually becomes a problem for the reviewers. Here's another very uh, general critique where they'll say, this is a descriptive project. It is not hypothesis driven. And yeah, you've seen that one sometimes. And that, um, that can be addressed also. There are different ways of dealing with that. So here's an example of a descriptive project. We will observe cells by microscopy and take images of morphology. Now this is really nice. You're going to look at the cells, take pictures of them. Um, and pictures are very illustrative and descriptive. So is there, you know, is there something else you can add to the mix that will make it more hypothesis driven and more concrete for the reviewers? Because yep, we've got pictures and but how what is this telling you what are the pictures showing you is there some way you can uh, better way that you can analyze this and make it more hypothesis driven so in the next slide instead of saying we will observe cells by microscopy and take images of morphology we say we will document and measure neurite outgrowth in living cells to test the hypothesis that drug a causes neuronal differentiation so you still have your microscope, you still have your pretty pictures of the cells, but now you've got graphs with measurements of neurites that will that you'll actually have error bars, you have a hypothesis about what a drug is going to do to them. And this is a much more hypothesis-driven, not less descriptive project. There's still a description because you've got pictures to go with it, but you've added uh, some hard numbers and graphs to it. So that, that will help something that is called descriptive instead of hypothesis driven. So in general, if you get this critique, you wanna make sure that your aims all have a, a, appropriate hypotheses and you wanna use your hard numbers and statistics whenever you can, because that will also get you more into the hypothesis driven, data driven, less descriptive. And again, I love, microscopy pictures. Those are very useful and you can, they, you know, illustrate a lot. See if you can add graphs or numbers uh, to, to things like that. So in general with these critiques, you wanna take the positive action on every comment that you can and save your contrary arguments for the few that cannot be addressed any other way. So whenever they, you know, if they say something, the best thing is to say, yes, thank you for this comment. Yes, we're going to do this. And yes, 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 until you get to something where you just, there's no way you can do uh, what they suggest or recommend. So here's one example. The reviewer is telling you, your study requires a data set of more than 300 unicorns. So what you can say here is, while we agree with the reviewer that more unicorns will be helpful to our study, there are only 300 in existence worldwide. Therefore, we will carry out our experiments with the sample set that we have available, which will provide valuable information on the disease. 
So, I mean, there's this is a, a way of kind of addressing the concern because there's nothing you can do. If, you, if there are only 300 in existence, you can't do this. But hopefully that you can convince them that uh, what you have will still provide useful information and that hopefully will be a, a good answer to the, that critique. But then you come up, and this happens a lot too, um, what if there are conflicting reviews? Because, you know, you've got two or three human beings reading this and they're going to have different opinions and they don't always read each other's reviews beforehand and they, they come up with opposite, uh, opposite ideas. So what do you do in that case? We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Let's say reviewer one is telling you your proposal is overly ambitious. And reviewer two is saying the proposal is not ambitious enough. All right, so how do you, how do you reconcile this? Is it overly or not? And they're at opposite ends here. So what do you, what do, you do here? Hmm. Well, one thing is to write something like this. The reviewers had differing opinions about the level of ambition for this proposal. We have added a more detailed timeline and a description of the work to clarify the time and effort needed to complete the project. So we're being diplomatic. We're not agreeing with one or two. We're saying that there are differing opinions and that we're going to address the whole thing by being more descriptive, having a more of a timeline and uh, talking more about the work that we need to do. And you hope that this will be a good answer for you know, something that's conflicting. But yeah, this can be a challenge when you get a, a conflicting review. On the other hand, you definitely want to take special note if you see the same criticism stated by more than one reviewer. So if you have a whole chorus of people saying the same thing, uh, you know, you're overambitious, and two or three of them say the same thing. You really have to take that very seriously. Um, it's probably pretty a pretty important criticism uh, when somebody, when more than one person says the same thing. So keep that in mind too. So the most important points for your resubmission: you you want to clearly indicate the changes that you make from the original application, so the reviewer it's very clear what uh, what you've done differently. And you want to respond to all the points that they bring up, even the most minor ones. If there's a typo or an error of some kind, don't overlook it. Put every everything you can into the um, into the response. And you want to write a good at with a good attitude without uh, being condescending, because even though you may know more about what you're doing than the reviewer, you, you don't. You, you know, you want to not put any psychological. Uh, pressure on, you know, or, or other, you know, sort of put them in a bad space where they're acting defensive and, you know, because they're human beings and they're going to respond to a bad attitude with, you know, maybe a bad attitude. Hopefully they're professional enough that they won't, but you just never know who, you know, who's reviewing. So you want to keep them on, on it with a good, good attitude and a good thought. And if they've asked you for any additional preliminary data, Make sure you have it um, before you send it in again, unless there's some very compelling reason why you couldn't do that. Because you really, if you if it's needed to show feasibility, you want to have that in front of them so that they know uh, that you're able to do it or that you have what you need. So be sure to try to put any of that additional data in that they've asked for. 
So we're, we'll use a little bit of the example from National Institutes of Health, NIH. This is the information needed for the one-page introduction. You must include an introduction that summarizes substantial additions, deletions, and changes in response to the issues and criticisms raised in the, in the summary statement, the review. So this is just what we talked about here, and it's, it's written exactly like this in the NIH guidelines. And then again from NIH, they have a whole bunch of statements about the resubmission. And you want to be sure to read through all of these to make sure that you're in compliance. You know how, and, and they change, and these things change constantly. So you have to get make sure you've got the most updated uh, information about how to do the resubmission. And you know, if we only allow one resubmission for each new unfunded application. You must resubmit within 37 months. So you've, you've got to make sure you've got all this information before you resubmit, and make sure you have the right deadlines and all that um, before you start doing that. So here's an example from my own grant, a little bit of a rebuttal, part of the page, that one page. Here they asked me more information is needed on statistical analysis. They wanted that. So all I answered was one sentence. We've added more detail about statistical methods in the methods section. In the, in the rebuttal itself or in the introduction itself, you, if you only have one page, um, there is sort of a space limitation. And so if you've, rather than going through in every detail about exactly what I did, I told them it's in the methods section and put one sentence in there rather than take up a lot of space. And then they wanted me to uh, look at some other markers in my histology. So we've added some other markers and you can even put images in your, um, on your page, on your one-page introduction, if it, if you feel that it would help, um, it would, as I did here. So there are ways of, you know, this is just part of the rebuttal. But you want to, you know, you know, you have to think about your space if you only have one page, and you know, answer the everything as as well as you can. So once you've written that introduction to the revised application, I usually like to use it as a checklist for changing the body of the research strategy of the application itself. And it's very useful. You just go through and, and check things off and, um, you know, just make those changes. A lot of times, if your application is pretty good, you don't have a lot of changes to make. Um, hopefully, that would be the case. But you, at least you have everything there in front of you. So if you need to make a new uh, collaboration, you need to add a, somebody else into your project. Um, Going back to the earlier versions of this webinar, you, you want to write a letter of collaboration for them to sign to save them time. So, you know, you write dear yourself and you write a letter like this that you want to continue the collaboration or start the collaboration if it's a new one on the uh, on the project. And then, you know, write down that the per they have, you know, a repository that you can use and that you've maybe you've published together and they have everything that you need to do the project. And so I always like to write the letter for the collaborator just so that they don't, it saves them time and they need to put this on their letterhead so that, um, you know, it's seen, it has a legitimacy to it um, on, a, on a professional letterhead. And so again, you're bringing new people on for your resubmission. And just as with your first submission, you want to have your, the bio sketches in the correct format. And if they send, if your collaborators send it in the wrong format, you can fix it have them send any new methods that you want and their other support. And it's just the same as you would do for your, uh, your initial submission to bring people on board.
So you and you also want to go through all of the documents from your previous application, including the budget, the biosketch, the human subjects, animals, and you want to make sure everything is updated for the new application. It's really easy to kind of think, oh yeah, 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 that's all the same stuff as before. But you really want to make sure that the dates and the approvals and all those things are up to date. So you want to revise your budget also through your grants office because salaries and expenses may have increased since the previous submission and maybe the guidelines have changed from the sponsor maybe they uh there's more or less um of a uh an allowance for salary or some or supplies or something so you want to make sure that you're still within the right guidelines with that and as i mentioned you want to have your approvals up to date because maybe the last one you sent in had an old you know previous approval date and you've revised it or you've done something different so you want to make sure you have the right dates on everything so in summary you want to read and review the summary statement on your own terms in a quiet place you want to clarify any questions with the program officer not the reviewers you need to ask yourself if the re resubmission is feasible. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is to uh, do something, you know, try to uh, re reuse it in another venue. You want to address uh, each critique in your introduction. You can use the introduction as a checklist for changes. You want to follow all these instructions from the sponsor and make sure that all your approvals and budgets are updated. So as you can see, I have left lots of time for questions and I'll be happy to take any questions. Thanks, Gail. That was an excellent presentation. And we do have a few questions from the audience. So if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right-hand side of your screen. So the first question that I have is, um, so you were talking about that even if your proposal is triaged or not discussed, that it could still be worth salvaging. Do you have any guidance on how to decide if it's worth salvaging? Um, a couple of things you can do. One is, of course, to ask the program officer. Um, they really will often give you very good feedback about what they think, uh, whether it's worth resending re back or not. Um, and you can look at it too. If you look at the comments mm -hmm. and they're just really major fatal flaws, um, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. Or, I mean, the other thing is that it just may take time. Maybe you need to run some more experiments before uh, you want to send it back. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be a yes or no. It could be not right now, I'm going to send it back later when I have more of these things that they want. You know, So a lot of it's a very individualized question and answer, but these are some of the things that you can do to try to decide if the triaged grant is worth uh, sending back. Okay. And along those same lines, um, how do you decide whether or not you should send it back as a resubmission or create it as a new, or put it in as a, like do some major retooling and put it in as a new grant? Um, if it's just minor uh, revisions, uh, you can probably just send it in as a revised mm -hmm. uh, grant. If there are a lot of major things, and I think NIH used to have, I don't know if they still have the guideline of if more than 50% of the proposal is different, it's probably better to send it as something new rather than try to send it as 
its previous version. Um, that's sort of the general guideline, I guess they say. That makes sense. So let's see. Okay, so our next question is about timelines. So is there any reason why you would want to get it in sooner or, sorry, is getting it in sooner better than getting it in later? So that I'm guessing this refers to, you said that there's about 37, at least with the NIH, there's 37 months that you have to resubmit it. Yeah. Is there any penalty if you take, say, 36 of those 37 months? Um, the risk of taking longer is, one, you could get scooped if, if it's a very, you know, some it's a tough field and a lot of people are doing that, mm -hmm. somebody could, you know, scoop you. The other thing is it depends where you are in your career. If you're on tenure track and or you're running out of time on your tenure clock and you need funding, you know, a lot of times people will try to push and send things out sooner because it takes so long to get the answer. It takes months between the time you submit it and the time you find out about it that, you know, you've lost maybe a year or two sometimes. We just, <laughs> right. just that whole cycle. Um, and so there is a a feeling of urgency if you're, especially if you're, you know, your salary depends on it or your job depends on it, you want to get it out. But then you, if you send it out too soon, you risk not having it the way that it needs to be or sending a, a subpar uh, proposal. So it is a trade-off and you kind of have to uh, see what your own situation is with things like that. Okay. And then, um... Okay, so then we have a question about, you mentioned collaborators. When do you know if you should bring in somebody to collaborate or if you should have them as a co-investigator? Um, well, if they're collaborating, they can they can be both a collaborator and a co-investigator or a consultant. Okay. Yeah, um, a lot of it depends on how big of a role they're gonna play. If they're just gonna do something small, you can have them as a consultant or something like that get a letter from them and say, oh, we're just going to do this one small little thing. Um, mm -hmm. If it's something that, you know, they're going to be doing AIM too, then you want to, if someone's doing a whole or most of an AIM, you definitely want them to be a co-investigator with you. Um, and you can add them in, you know, as in your resubmission and say they're going to, you know, be involved in this part of the project. So it has to do with how, how much are they working on or what are they doing for you? Okay. And then, okay, so I think this is kind of funny. Um, so do you have any recommendations for um, what you should do when you said that, you know, when you're sitting down to read your, your critiques or your reviews that you shouldn't do anything, you should focus on that. Uh, do you have any comment or anything to help you get over the reviews? Like if you're very <laughs> upset, like getting to that point where you can say thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, for different people, it's going to take different amounts of time. I usually take a day or two to just mope you know, if I've gotten mm -hmm. bad news, um, you know, and you don't want to do anything during that time, it, you know, let let the time pass and you can't even send it back right away anyway. There's not a lot you can do about it in the first couple of weeks anyway, usually. Um, so, yeah, do do other things. Don't dwell on it. Try to, you know, and and also, I mean, maybe in some ways think of it as strengthening your resolve of I can do this. this, you know, I can address this or you see things, oh yeah, I can do that and within the next, you know, couple of months and be mm -hmm. able to fix this. So, you know, you can feel better about it. And also I feel like talking to people about it, trusted people, other faculty or other postdocs or st whatever stage you're at, talk to your mm -hmm. colleagues about it. Because I'm almost all of us at some point 
um, has had this happen to us, you know, so, and we know right. how you feel and we can commiserate. I mean, even if you're on Twitter, I, I see on Twitter all the time, people, oh, help me. I just got a terrible score and I feel terrible. And people will jump, oh, you're okay. You know, get some validation from other people and you'll feel better about it. So like I say, you can't take it personally. And there's so much that you can do to, to try to make it better. So think of it as, okay, that's done. And where do we go from here? Because I think a lot of times the worst part of it is not knowing. You're yeah. waiting for months and you have no idea whether they liked it or hated it. Once you know, it's almost freeing to know, okay, so it's it, they didn't like it. So now I know, now what am I going to do about it? So it's mu you're much more empowered to do something once you know. And it's the nebulous being in limbo that's that it's really tough to be. I like that attitude. Like now that you know you can act on that information as opposed to, you know, overly wallowing in, oh, I'm horrible. It, like, right. It, have it, have, yeah, have a, very, a very directed response to it. And, you, and they've written usually pretty clearly what you need to do, hopefully. And you say, yeah, this is what I'm going to do now in response to it. And it sort of energizes you and it focus you, focuses you on what to do next. Okay, and we've got a question about key personnel. So, um, so what if your key personnel are nearing retirement or they have other issues, maybe health issues or they're moving or something that may make them unavailable to complete the project? Is it acceptable to provide a potential backup person? So if somebody was, let's say somebody was going to do a small part of AIM2, but you know they're going to be retiring sometime in the next year or so, um, can you provide a second, another name or a secondary collaborator? Um, it doesn't hurt to have another collaborator in there. Um, it, it gets tricky if you wanted to give them both a salary and have to justify um, why or describe, well, this person is leaving. Um, unless somehow that person uh, is going to be around, oh, I'm saying if they're retiring within the next year, they may not be there by the time the grant is funded, they might not even be there. Um, so yeah, you have to think about the timing of it. You know, mm -hmm. will that person be there when it's funded? And sometimes there's a delay in funding. Um, so you, you, they may or may not be there. So if that person can write a letter, I'd be happy to collaborate. And depending on what they're doing, if they become, let's say an emeritus professor, it doesn't mean they've, you know, left, they still have an office, and depending on what they're doing, they could still be helpful to you as an emeritus professor. So unless it's actually, you know, carrying out an experiment, or they could even recommend one of their former students or a colleague or somebody that's doing the same thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, and go with that. That makes, yeah, that would work, especially if they're going to be an emeritus, they can help kind of guide you still, and you probably don't have to ask for a salary for them in that case. Right, exactly. So they could write a letter of support, oh, I really like mm -hmm. this project, and I'm retiring, but I want my former postdoc who's really, I've trained him in this and you know, they're gonna be able to do this with you or something like that. And then we have a question about, um, okay. So this one is for, I guess if you're more junior faculty, how would you, um, sorry. Okay, so let's say if you were more junior faculty, um, and you collaborate with, is it worth it to bring in, say, more as a, like a co-PI who has more of an established track record of what you're doing? 
um, depending on the critiques of your grant, or is it better to have them on as a collaborator? In general, I'd say put them as a collaborator. If you're okay. an early, early stage, um, starting out, you want to establish your independence and that you can run this program yourself. Mm -hmm. And you don't want that, you know, very senior person to be seen of, oh, that's really his grant. And they're just taking this other person along kind of thinking, which may mm -hmm. be completely erroneous, but sometimes you don't right. know what people are going to think when they see that. So yeah, I would say put them as a collaborator and not as a co-PI and be, keep yourself as the PI. Um, they, they also, I, I found that, that in general, the co-PI, the double PI, at least at NIH, Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't have as high of a success rate because you need oh. a very compel. You need a very compelling reason why these two people should be co-equal, and it's not always. You know, there's always um, a lot of times when I've tried to do it. There's clearly one person is doing a lot more than another person, mm -hmm. and it becomes really clear who should be the PI and who should be the collaborator. So kind of look at if it's not like completely equal. Um, st steer clear of the co-PI. I would say in general. That's really good guidance. Um, okay, it looks like we have one question left. So what do you do if you have, say, two people who really like your grant and then one person who apparently, like from your reviewers, and then it looks like one person who really did not and your grant seemed, did not get a favorable score? Um, do you focus on the two that were happy or do you focus mainly on the critique that's not? Because they're asking yeah. kind of about uneven critiques. Right, right. Yeah. And that happens, that, that infamous reviewer three that people yes. <laughs> talk about. Reviewer um, number three. Reviewer number three. Um, yeah. So um, what you do is you do you, you have to address what reviewer three said. Um, mm -hmm. And Unfortunately, you know, in these tight, difficult times, reviewer three, the scores just from reviewer three alone can bring the whole thing down. Even if the other two gave you a good score, the, the average of the three or whatever it is um, can give you. A, so you definitely have to address reviewer three. You definitely want to mention we were, you know, pleased that reviewer one liked our this experiment. So, you, you know, throw in. The positive comments okay. in, in your introduction and where he's talking about oh they were very enthusiastic about what we were doing and and that but you definitely have to address reviewer three um just because you know you have to address everything that's in there good and bad okay that looks like that was our last question so that brings us to the end of the seminar so thank you again, Gail, for a very illuminating presentation and a fantastic discussion. This was, even I learned something, which I always like to get from webinars. Great, and, thank you, Amanda. And thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed this uh, webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 to 48 hours. And there you can see the other webinars we have lined up for you on Bite Size Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research and your grant writing, and goodbye from all of us at Bite Size Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Thank you.
Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.